you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shellick and Colin White, portfolio managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. I'd like to welcome everybody to Bare Naked Money. Now, apparently I have not been enunciating clearly, or Josh has not been enunciating clearly because we've had people give us feedback that it sounds like we're saying Bare Naked Monkey. And for the record, no, we're not talking about Bare Naked Monkeys, it's Bare Naked Money. So I'm going to do a better job of enunciating that going forward. <laughs> and that's a real thing. So this week, we're going to talk about bubbles. And it's something that's getting thrown around in uh, the, the media a lot these days. It's a term that, again, is used a lot, even though people don't understand it necessarily. So we're going to talk a little bit about the history of bubbles, the reality of bubbles, uh, the non-reality of bubbles, and what this could mean to you making decisions in your world. We'll turn it into something useful at the end. Now, Josh, I know you've been bragging about reading this book recently. That's you know a great history book talking about bubbles. So you are way up to speed on this stuff. So I'm fascinated to sit back and listen to some of the stuff you've learned about the the, the origins of bubbles and, and, and the stories that go with. Yeah, so I see bubbles really fascinating. I'm still a little bit held up. I wonder how many zookeepers are subscribing to our podcast right now that are looking for information on monkeys. <laughs> well, it gets us, gets us a whole, whole new audience. We've diversified our audience, maybe. Yeah. Well, hey, zookeepers need money managed too, right? <laughs> well, let's jump into the information on bubbles. And uh, the book that you're talking about is called Money for Nothing. And it's a history of the South Sea bubble, which started back in uh, around uh, the year 1720. So in case you thought bubbles were a more recent phenomenon? Nope, they've been going on for many centuries. So Colin, I guess we'll start here. How about you help me explain or define what a bubble actually is? Because I think that's a point that we probably need to cover in, in some color. Well, you know, again, there's it's difficult to get a really precise definition because again, it gets thrown around and used. It's sort of like, you know, the word recession gets thrown around and used. It's, it, it gets taken out of context a lot. But the, the basic meaning is that a period of time where an asset is trading uh, disconnected from any rational underlying value. Now, the, the argument becomes, you know, when markets are considered to be forward-looking, that you can't really define irrationality in the moment. It's only defined in hindsight. I'll give you an example. When Alan Greenspan stood up on December the 5th, 1996, and coined or used the phrase publicly that caught on, irrational exuberance, it's important to note that the U.S. markets never traded lower after that moment. Now, when he stood up and made that comment, it was supposedly a, 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 a big bubble moment, and it was a big, you know, there's a lot of attention given to it. But looking back on it, no, that wasn't, that, that couldn't, that didn't behave like a bubble from that moment on. Things went went up from there. We never went back to that point again. So this is where it gets a little more complicated. You know, you can say in the moment that something seems to be trading at a rate that's not justifiable, but 
especially today when things move so quickly and information moves so fast and you've got these markets where things trade thousands of times a second, you have real-time expressions of sentiment. So, and sentiment can, can, can develop a, a momentum. So it is perhaps true and arguable that today the bubbles can form more quickly or the, 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 the the disconnect between the underlying asset and the price people are willing to pay in the moment could grow more quickly today, and we may see more examples of it, but they're no more identifiable than they've ever been. Because right. again, the only way you can really identify it is by looking back and saying, yeah, it collapsed back to what we perceive to be the rational value at some point later. So, you know, it gets thrown around a lot. And Josh, maybe you could talk to some of the different baskets right now where they're you know, people are throwing around the bubble word. Yeah, well, let me ask you this before I get into that. Do, do you think the term bubble is used too often, is thrown around too often? Oh, absolutely. I think it's one of those catchy words that, you know, it, it signifies danger. You know, when people say bubbles, like, oh, where's the bubble? Because you want to avoid bubbles because it's a dangerous thing. So I think it's thrown around as, a, as kind of a catch-all, like or a, a, an attention catcher. So, you know, if you can throw the word recession into uh, a comment, that's an attention getter. You can throw bubble, that's an attention getter. So I do think it gets thrown around and used a lot more um, than, you know, it's like, I forget what leading indicator, maybe you can help me with this, you know, successfully predicted 19 out of the last five recessions. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's different indicators you look at that, you know, you, Indicate something far more often than it occurs, but it's still out there because it's it's a, it's a really uh, scary thing. So therefore, people talk about it a lot. Yeah, yeah, you're talking about the inverted yield curve, which is you know not not a bubble indicator per se, but a recession indicator often thought is uh, is that. So I I think the other point that we need to make is why people always try to identify these bubbles is because yeah you have as a bubble does, it grows, it grows, it grows, it grows to a point where it's not sustainable anymore and then boom, it pops. And that's that's the crash. That's the crash in the asset price. That's the the catastrophe, the the people, the, the point where people lose money. Uh, but that, that exact point of bursting is extremely difficult to predict timing. Even if you've correctly identified a bubble, that bubble can run a lot longer than you think it can. If you think something's overvalued, just wait for another month or another year because it could be more overvalued at that time. And this is the, the challenge with the bubble. Things tend to rise exponentially in a bubble type of, of environment until it bursts. That's the old expression. The market can remain you know, irrational far, more, far longer than you can remain liquid. Yeah. You know, that, that's where that expression comes from and that's exactly what it's pointing to. And this is the danger in bubble prediction. Like you know, There's no reliable way statistically to identify bubbles it's just an expression that indicates that there's a, an opinion that there's a, a disconnect now between pricing and the underlying value yeah so josh for a second you know of all the asset classes we're talking about most people or a lot of people or everybody's going to want to know our opinion on you know stocks and whether stocks you know in general are in a bubble or whether a sector of the stock market is in a bubble and as and as much as the stock market is is a proxy for an underlying industry or asset class or what have you. Uh, what, what's your comment on, on, on where the stock market in general or specifically is 
vis-a-vis bubblicious behavior. Right. So stocks, generally speaking, are highly valued relative to their own history. Right. So that just means the the amount that you're paying for every dollar of profits is pretty high today relative to history. You could call that a high price to earnings ratio. You talked about the peg ratio before, high peg ratio, high price to there's a lot of different ratios or statistics that we can throw out there. All of them basically say the same thing. Stock prices are elevated, stock valuations are elevated relative to, to their own history. Well then you you can that's a very broad uh, comment that's a very broad comment and you can look around and say okay well let's dig a little bit deeper so us is definitely at the high end of its of its historical valuation range whereas if you look internationally things are are much more modest and then you can look at individual sectors and some sectors are very reasonably valued whereas others are maybe a little bit more more highly valued so I guess generally speaking, high valuations do not mean for sure that we're we're in a bubble. And I would argue that there's a lot of here here go again trying to paint a narrative to it. There's a lot of rational reasons why stock valuations today are higher than they have been at many points throughout history. And and one of those big reasons is interest rates. Your other options that are out there. If you're an investor, you have all these different options, right? Your other options to make money other than stocks today are not that attractive. So that's going to naturally make stock prices a little bit higher. So my opinion is that we're not in a bubble for sure on stocks. I guess you can't say anything for sure, but I'd be surprised, especially with economic growth coming along here. Um, but we are definitely a little bit on the, the high end in terms of valuations, which maybe makes the stock market a little bit more susceptible to volatility here. I think what you're looking at right now is that, you know, you know I'm not a fan of efficient market theory, but let's for a moment accept efficient market as a, as a workable theory for the time being. And that stocks reflect all information that's available. And, you know, the, the missing piece in that, the information that's not really, you know, you have to kind of suss out of things is expectations. So I think what, you know, the, the, the point to be made is that the stock market is currently pricing in expectations that things are going to go a certain way. Like there's a certain optimism that's baked into stock prices right now. So looking historically, they may look overvalued, but you know, the, the, the rubber is going to hit the road on whether or not the expectations that people are building into these prices and what they're willing to pay, are they met? And that's what's going to make this either rational or irrational. And that's the problem where we can't define it today. Because if the expectations are met, then these are absolutely the right prices. If expectations disappoint, then you could look back historically and call this a bubble. And that's why we spend so much time, effort, and energy trying to, to suss out what the real story is and not get caught up in the noise and the narratives just to be comfortable. It's understanding what the probabilities are at any moment in time. And you talk about uh, behavioral finance a lot and emotions as they impact money and finance and investing. And this is, it's a very emotional thing bubbles because you have Really, what it, what it looks like when you're sitting on the sidelines is that everybody around you is getting rich with something that's that's very very easy, 
to do, right? Oh, well, that thing is always going up. It's going up more today than it was last year. It's going up more a year from now than it was uh, a month before that. And these, this type of momentum, uh, it results in a hurting type of effect where people start piling in more and more to this and think that they can't lose money whatsoever. They're making tons of money, hand over fist, until the music stops and that's that's the problem so it's a very emotionally driven uh exercise right well it's the old the old fomo fear of missing out i mean that's a very powerful thing um and again it's you know at a certain point everybody's talking about it because it's going so well as happened bubbles again tend to be extreme yes <laughs> statisticians would talk about reversion to the mean you know, popping a bubble sounds way more dramatic than reversion to the mean um, but again, you know, there's a lot of emotion that get tied up in the world. But listen, why don't you walk us through, because we, we can learn from history, and you know, there's examples that we can walk through. Some of them, nobody listening to this podcast has lived through, but then we can talk about some of the bubbles that have happened more recently and maybe give some color and some, some insight as to, to what we're facing today. Where do you want yeah. to start? How, how far back do you want to go? Tulips. Tulips. Wasn't that 1400 and something? <laughs> I, I, you know, I can't remember the exact century, but th this is the real, the first real bubble that has kind of made it into, I would say, some type of, of modern uh, literature or modern storytelling, right? Is the tulip bubble back in, uh, in the Netherlands uh, many centuries ago, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s. I, I can't remember the exact century there, but, and, and we're not joking when we say it was tulips, tulips and tulip bulbs. It seems incredible, it seems impossible, but this is this was a massive run-up in the price, the value of tulips and bulbs at that time. There are stories going back to this time where you could exchange a tulip bulb for an entire horse and buggy. That's like today trading a dandelion for an automobile. That's a crazy thought. I actually went to the, uh, the Netherlands to Amsterdam uh, several years ago and, and our tour guide showed me a house, a house, a 20, 20 room house, like this thing was a palace. And he said, you could buy that for the same price as, as a tulip bulb uh, back in, in the tulip mania. Um, that, so, so there's some dicey data going back this far. We're not sure exactly what is true, what's been embellished throughout history, but what is definitely true is people were trading tulip bulbs for astronomical prices. You can go to the 1720s when the South Sea bubble happened, which is another one of the, the most prominent. And then you just kind of flow into the 19th century where you have the Great Depression, the Japanese asset bubble. But you have some that, that have existed in your career. You've seen several, I would say, prominent bubbles since you've been in the industry. Uh, what, what more recent bubbles have, have you seen? Well, I think the most recent one that that actually has got some some lessons that need to be remembered you know, going forward uh, would be the, the the tech or the internet bubble of the late '90s and into 2000, and that one was particular in that you know people literally were investing in nothing; they were investing in just pure ideas. There were there were companies that never really sold anything that were worth ridiculous sums of money. And, you know, so you, you say, okay, now, what happened then? Like, how did you know or what, what were the indications there were a bubble? Well, the complete lack of any, you know, income 
is was a good one. And that manifested itself in something called a peg ratio. Now, Josh, I'm curious. Did you study peg ratios when you did your CFA course in the 2000s? I'm trying to, th I'm sure the peg was on there somewhere, but. I, I, so what I, happened was, you know, the, the whole industry is based on price earnings. But if you have no earnings, no E, well, you need to add something else. What do we have? We have growth projections. Oh, okay. Well, let's add growth and we'll call it a peg ratio because at least those that math can work. We can come up with a number that that that, that actually calculates because absent earnings. So when the industry is making up to try to describe what's going on and they're pulling it right out of the there's an indication that maybe you're not dealing with something that's substantive. You know, and that was that was one of my big learning moments. I was I'm a skeptical person. I mean, people know that about me by now. So I wasn't really participating, and therefore I was a really poor financial advisor back in the '90s. Uh, I didn't make a lot of money because I wasn't willing to get on that crazy bandwagon. Um, but the peg ratio really stuck with me. It's like, oh, good, we're making stuff up now. Great, this this is going to keep going. So that that was that, that for me that was big and that was it was really identifiable in that you had companies that had literally done nothing that were worth hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, so again that that, that was the first one that I saw. I don't know what the history books said about it, you know, Josh, because you probably read about it, you know, sometime after two thousand. Yeah. Well. I I've been just looking at some of the crazy stats and, and anecdotes from these periods of time, uh, just over the last couple of days preparing for this. And here's an incredible one for you. So there is a study of 95 companies during this period of time that added .com, .net, or internet to their names. So they did nothing else, these companies. They added .com, .net, or internet to their name, the name of the company. And on average, over 10, day period these stocks went up 74 <laughs> percent well that was like the antidote richard thaler used in that piece that i sent you so richard thaler is an economist who's who's very big in behavioral finance talking about the cuba fund so there's actually something with a with the ticker symbol cuba nothing to do with the country it's a closed end mutual fund product and it traded at you know somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of net asset value meaning you could buy a share of the cuba fund for 80 to 90 cents on the dollar of, of, of assets actually held in this product right up until obama went came out and talked about normalizing relationships with cuba the cuba fund which had nothing to do with the country <laughs> shot up 170 percent over the next week and stayed there for like 10 years before it finally drifted back closer to its nav. So, you know, again, bubblicious, uh, you know, this, 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 this kind of looks bubbly to me, but these are the things that you, you, you really got to keep your eye open for, uh, for as an investor, you know, again, don't just find something that says Cuba and think it is Cuba. Yeah. Well, and this is why, as you described at the outset, there's some irrationality involved with bubbles. These are irrational things, and, and these little stories are, are pretty easy to identify these bubbles. But like you said, with the Cuba fund, it took so many years after this asinine price movement happened for things to actually correct and revert themselves to what you would say is, is the appropriate valuation. So 
that's that just emphasizes the, the the idea of how difficult it is to try to time some of these things even if you do correctly predict that something is in a bubble and you avoid it or you short it or try to make money off it in some way it could not work out for you in a positive way at the end of the day oh no absolutely now i don't know josh after the tech wreck which which other perceived or actual bubble uh would you like to discuss well, we have the, the great financial crisis that's there, right? Which I think a lot of our listeners are gonna be familiar with. And it really started with housing. Started with housing back in, in the mid 2000s and, and mostly in the US. They had these things called ninja loans. You know what a ninja loan is? <laughs> yeah, but I wouldn't be able to get through without laughing. You'll have to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> so ninja is an acronym. It stands for no income, no job, no assets. So these financial institutions in the US were lending money to people through these ninja loans with people with no income, no job, no assets. So how they're ever going to have a, a hope of paying back these loans, uh, I'm not sure. The other thing that was, I guess, an incredible innovation or incredibly stupid, depending on how you look at it, was a loan with a negative amortization on it. So, you know, when, you get a traditional mortgage, you're trying to pay that down over the next 25 years. And as you pay it down, as you make payments towards that mortgage, your principal balance drops over time. They had these negative amortization loans in the US where over time, the amount of your payment, the principal amount on the loan actually went up. So effectively, your interest calculation, your interest charge was higher than the payment that you were paying each month. And that's just, it's not a recipe to pay off that loan, let me say that. Well, no, and people say, oh my God, that's ridiculous, nobody would ever do that. But, you know, as an accountant, I would just walk and say, well, we're just gonna capitalize some of your interest, you'll be, you'll be good. Oh, well, capitalizing my interest, that sounds smart. You know, it, it's, you know, you can put all kinds of language around this that make it sound way smarter than we're making it sound here. And it's also in the moment. And listen, I will plug a movie. Uh, that does a way better job of explaining this, and it's virtually a documentary. The Big Short is a fabulous piece of, of, of movie making that actually uses all kinds of very interesting ways to tell the story and explain the nuances. But, you know, the, the mortgage-backed security market, I mean, again, you know, just to tie it back to the bubble thing, the, the real bubble here was that, you know, people were willing to, to buy these mortgages that turned out to be virtually worthless. So that was you know, the, the bubble aspect of things because these mortgages are trading in the market and people are buying baskets of mortgages because mortgages are good. Mortgages never go bad because real estate never goes down. I can't possibly lose my money here. Well, wait for it. <laughs> it really depends on the quality of the underlying assets. So, and a lot of the financial crisis of that time was the disconnect between the information that was available to the actual investors and you know what they were being paid for it. And frankly, the commissions being received by the institutions putting these products together and selling them. Uh, but again, there was very few people in the moment that accurately identified what was going on. It was only by looking back that we really saw that. Yeah, yeah, very hard to, to identify. Now, we could probably rattle off another dozen bubbles without even doing any research on it because they do come up uh, frequently over time. But we do have some sort of conditions or tendencies that tend to exist around these bubbles. So 
what say you call what, what do you think when you, you look at these bubbles are there some consistent trends that we can look for well again there's, there's some general principles you can look for you know with when you enter into a bubble you know there's there's an, an, a necess, there's a necessity to obfuscate things a little bit to make it appear a little bit more reasonable or rational you know so that can lead to additional complexity so if you're seeing things get increasingly complex or opaque and it's more and more difficult with the discerning eye to understand the products that are out there and market movements and things of that nature, you know, those those are warning flags, right? And and I and I guess I you know the most real example right now for us, and you and I see this every day, you know, there's a real issue with you know the the bond market and expectations within the bond market. So you know, there's all this complexity that's coming into it. Now, is that going to lead to bubbleish things that occur in, in the, the areas around traditional fixed income? I, I, I think it's going to lead to that. I think there's going to be some unintended consequences and maybe some un, unquantified risk in, in the activity in that space. Uh, so, you know, that's one thing that I look for and I think that that's one you know thing you can look for just in general if things seem to be getting more and more complicated and more and more difficult to completely understand then that's an indicator uh, but it's only one of many what the what say you Josh what would you look for to determine whether or not something was in bubblish territory yeah well so so for me I just on one point that you made there I don't think the traditional fixed income market is in a bubble by any means and I don't think you were making that point, right? No, no, I was saying that the areas around it, like you know, when you yeah. see the complexity and the products around it, the things that are trying to creep into that space. You know, sure. So, so when, yeah. you, when you have, you know, again, it's an asset class, and again, we do a whole podcast on, on outlooks for that asset class, but right. it could, it conceivably could be quite dire. So you have all these pop-ups around it that yeah. you know, ha may be of dubious quality because there's a lot right. of, there's a lot of demand in the areas around it. And you know, get a lot of demand, dubious quality, complex products. You know, you could find some 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 bubblicious areas there. I I really struggle with calling something a bubble because that that makes it very definitive. I, I prefer to say it it's bubble it's bubble like it has bubble tendencies. It's got you know, but to say that there's an actual thing we can quantify and say, yep, that's a bubble. That's got the three factors we look for. It's not that definitive. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. So I, I think you, you've you nailed it there. Usually surrounding a bubble, you see financial complexity and financial innovation of some sort kind of proliferating, right? So that that's for sure. And all of these examples that we've kind of round off throughout history have some some level of that to some extent. Like even if you go back to the tulip bubble, which for the record was in the 1600s. 1643. Yeah, yeah exactly. So the tulip bubble they were actually trading options, like a, a version of a modern day option on tulips. So you would make a commitment to have the option to buy a tulip at some price in the future. So, you know, before the growing season. So this, that's financial innovation, which tends to lead to some unintended consequences, tends to lead to unintended consequences, right? So that's, um, that's one example of it. You know, we saw with the South Sea bubble, again, going back to the 1700s, the first debt for equity swap that, that we have record of at that time. So those are, are definitely things that you tend to see around, around bubbles. Um, the other thing for me, there's always a narrative. There's always a narrative. There's, there's always a story. And that story, that narrative 
always seems to be either completely legitimate or semi-plausible. And we'll go back to the tech bubble that you're talking about. The narrative then was the internet is revolutionizing the world. And it did, it truly did revolutionize the world. So that's not the issue here. And I think you could look around today to see that there are some things that we could say are revolutionizing the world. That doesn't make it a good investment. Yeah, no, and that's the nuance. I mean, the human condition is such that we look for narratives. And if you tell a story that connects three or four data points that are accepted to be true, then your story becomes true. The problem is, is in the data points it excludes. You know, because again, it's not when you create a narrative, it's not the only narrative. And that's where the nuance comes in. And when it comes to the innovation like we're talking about, like, hey, congratulations to Tulips for, for, for giving us options. Hey, congratulations to the, the SOC bubble for giving us debt equity swaps. You know, those are tools that could, in the right circumstances, actually aid capital markets. And they have, you know, they, they have a role to play. But, you know, that's where having a, a depth of understanding of the whole playing field comes in. And having the confidence to appear wrong while the irrationality persists. You know, again, if you watch The Big Short, Dr. Michael Burry, who was credited as one of the first to uh, understand the problem with mortgage-backed securities, just about went bankrupt. He was sued by every one of his clients because he was perceived as having been wrong. And he was wrong right up until he wasn't. So, you know, not only do you have to have a critical view of what's going on, you have to have it persist in the face uh, of a lot of opposition because those narratives, as you described, Josh, can become very compelling and powerful and they gain a weight of their own. Yeah, maybe the biggest bubble in history, I mentioned the Japanese asset bubble. A lot of people, just because it's foreign in, in a literal sense, they don't really understand how big this bubble was, how significant it was, but I'll throw a couple stats at you. And, and again, the narrative here was that Japan was going to overtake the US as sort of the, the preeminent economy in the world, right? The Japanese property market in 1990, shortly before this bubble burst, was four times the value of the entire US real estate market. And hold on, it gets better. The Imperial Palace grounds alone were estimated to be more worth more than the entire real estate in all of Canada. <laughs> and that bubble burst and the stock market crashed there. And today we're sitting here 2021 the stock market is lower than it was in 1990 before that bubble burst in Japan. Yeah, and that's a really fascinating one. And when you dig into the history books and that, it's quite interesting. And, and some of it, the reason it has persisted so long, and this actually is very relevant to today, you know, was that the Japanese government appears to have been reluctant to use many of the tools that other countries have been very willing to use. Now, again, is that part of a cultural thing or is that a, a you know, the, the government, the, the ruling class, but they've been unwilling to do some of the things necessary to unwind those kind of messes. And it's a little unfortunate. There's a lot of wonderful things about the Japanese economy. But it's a little unfortunate that that particular aspect has been allowed to persist over this amount of time. Because that's a, a, a tremendously scary story. Like if, if, if we'd sent the message out from this podcast that, oh my God, you know, you can have a bubble crack and the market doesn't get back to where it was for 30 years. 
well, we, we better make money off podcasts because we won't be managing money much longer. <laughs> That's right. So a couple other things that, that we often see surrounding a bubble, um, and it relates to, to regulation and debt. So regulation is usually a lack of regulation or something designed to skirt regulations or get around that. I think the, the best example of that is the financial crisis. We saw a lot of lending standards. I was talking about those ninja loans relaxed. Uh, and then there's a, a massive lack of transparency with, with financial institutions, uh, a massive lack of transparency with financial institutions on the assets that they had at the time. So if you see a, so a rapid decrease in the regulation uh, around a market, that could be an indicator as well. Now we've seen debt sort of take off over the last few years in a lot of different regards, Colin. So how, how important do you think debt is as an indicator of a potential bubble? Well, any single factor I don't think, you know, has a lot of, of value. I think it's always a matter of finding a combination of factors. And, you know, leverage, and, you know, that's just another word for debt, leverage can be an indicator of risk because, again, when you borrow money, to do something with it, uh, then if that doesn't work out, you still owe the money. So, you know, increasing debt leverage does increase the risk uh, profile of anything that you do, and certainly is an indicator that, you know, when something's really, really positive and everybody's talking about it, and you get in the cab and the cab drivers or the, the Uber driver is asking you about, hey, look, you know, did you buy your, how much gold do you own? You know, it, when those conversations start to hit, yeah, people are, they're taking out payday loans and they're going to all kinds of places, you know. So, yeah, you know, debt would tend to follow uh, a bubble as more and more people, you know, bought into the mania, whatever that was. Um, but, again, it's just one factor because, again, if you're, you know, there can be really legit reasons to borrow. I mean, right now, as we sit here today, money's almost never been cheaper. So if I have an idea, borrowing money right now might make a lot of sense. And from a planning perspective, we deal with that every day because people get encoded in their DNA, debt bad, and they never look at the actual playing field. It's like, well, in your situation for what you have going on, debt's actually probably pretty good, you know, in, in moderation. So, again, the nuance to all of these things is, is, is very important. And to steal the thunder, and how I intend to end this podcast is talking about you know, yeah, bubbles are things. They're impossible to, to, to quantify while you're in it, but they are something that you want to try to steer around. Uh, and, and, it, and that's all in the nuance. But other than that, what's on your list? What, what do you look for in, in bubblicious kind of things? Well, I, you know, I think that pretty much cover, covers all of the, the items that we have there. But I, I think it's important to, to note that just because you have some of these conditions in place doesn't mean you're in a bubble. And just because you don't have some of these conditions in place doesn't mean you are in a bubble. So usually a lot of these things kind of surround a bubble, but just because they're here doesn't mean that we say, oh yeah, we're, we're definitely in a bubble today. So this is, you know, as we tend to be calling, we're, we're being a little bit wishy-washy or gray. <laughs> Because there's just there's no black and white, there's no smoking gun around these types of things that that make it super obvious that you have one direction or the other to go. Well, let me throw one out that I think is 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 absolutely that that everybody's talking about. Real estate is real estate in a bubble. 
And I would come down firmly on the fence. You know, would I would I agree that expectations on the future value of real estate are very optimistic? Yeah, no, I, I would buy into that. But we're only going to know 20 years from now whether or not this was a bubble we're in right now. Because again, in order for this to be a bubble based on how it gets used in common common language, we'll have to see a very major sustained pullback. And I don't, I'm not confident we're going to see that. I think it's a, it's a very real possibility. Uh, but as we sit here today, for me, only history books are going to tell us whether or not this was a real estate bubble. Yeah. And my opinion is that we're not in a real estate bubble. I think real estate may be a bit overvalued, but that those are two different things, right? A bubble, like you said, sustained and significant pullback. Uh, I don't think we're, we're there. And I think when we look at some of those conditions for a bubble, we have maybe more debt involved with real estate than we've ever had, especially here in Canada. But a lot of those other conditions are, are not really uh, apparent today. The, the regulation actually in the real estate, the, the mortgage lending space is increasing. It's not decreasing. Um, you do have a lot of people getting involved in real estate and, and narrative trying to be uh, determined. But I haven't really personally seen a lot of financial innovation around the real estate or a lot of financial complexity around the real estate space. What? SPACs aren't investing in real estate, Josh? <laughs> well, they're the ones where we can think that, okay, maybe this is an indication of something that's a bit a bit more of an issue. So a SPAC, and for people that don't know what a SPAC is, is it's kind of a, a, a new innovation, new financial innovation, creative way for, for companies to be brought to the market. So you have private businesses like ours, like a lot of our listeners have out there, and to bring them public, you typically do what's called an IPO, an initial public offering. And these are, are generally sort of multi-millions or billions of dollars uh, worth of businesses that, that are brought public. So to make things simpler, to skirt some of those regulations today, companies, asset managers, financial institutions have been introducing companies to the public in the form of a SPAC instead of an IPO. Again, just to be clear, SPAC is very, very similar but has less regulation, usually has some good financial incentives for the person bringing that SPAC to the market. Uh, and this one has a lot of those red flags, a lot of those alarm bells that surround a bubble. Now, you could bring anything to market through SPAC. So it's not like you can say SPACs in general are in a bubble, but it's indicative of bubbly behavior, if you want to call it that. So when Shaquille O'Neal launches the Shaq SPAC, we should be we should be careful. No, that that's going to be a guaranteed winner. It's Shaq. Huh? A slam dunk, huh? huh? See what they <laughs> no, did there? there. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of the, the things today that's you know maybe a little bit out there. The other thing, calling NFTs. <laughs> I got into a stupid conversation with some friends the other day about it. You know cedar tree in his backyard it's a big old growth cedar tree and you know based on current market conditions for lumber it was probably worth some money and you know so he was going to consider selling off the tree and i said well no I mean, we'll just take it into the options market and you know we can magnify it several times over and somebody came up and said let's well let's launch an nft on the tree it's like sure that's not the dumbest thing ever <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can buy an nft for anything these days apparently 
I don't know if I shared this on, on, on previous uh, videos that we shot, but I did, I did a little bit of digging into NFTs. And it's not that cheap. Like there's actual fees to set them up. So I'm going, oh, okay, now I get it. So there's there's companies that are making their living off of the processing fees to create these imaginary things that don't really give you ownership to anything. Uh, yeah, this, the, well, there you go. I think that, it, that may have literally all of the things we're looking for uh, for a bubble. Yeah, well, definitely the financial innovation, the financial complexity. I, I've listened and, and read a ton of stuff on NFTs. I'm still not sure exactly how they work. Um, <laughs> debt involved, yeah, maybe. Um, lay people involved, for sure. It's not usually the most sophisticated people that I hear talking about getting an NFT. There's no regulation on these things. And you're seeing some completely irrational things in my mind. Maybe I'm irrational for not seeing it, but like when you're buying a, a five second video for $200,000, which is, has happened before, uh, look it up. And you can find that same video on YouTube for free. That's irrational to me, call me crazy. Yep, you're crazy. But again, we've already established the market can remain irrational much longer than you can remain liquid. So just because we're making fun of these things and just because there's no rational thought we can put behind them doesn't mean you can't get rich doing it. So, but that doesn't make it good, you know, yeah. because you ended up, if you go to the casino and you bet all of your house money on red and you win, that doesn't make that a good idea. That means you had a good outcome and congratulations. We're sincerely, sincerely happy for you, but that doesn't represent rational thought. And more often than not, you're going to have a bad outcome. So, you know, don't, don't construe what we're saying as these things will never make anybody any money ever. That's, that's, that's not our message. There are going to be people who's going to, and those people are going to talk a lot. The people who make money at this are going to be really proud of themselves and lots of people are going to want to hear the secret. And even if there wasn't a secret, they're going to make up a secret because they can sell a book off of it. So the, the, the upside of these things will be talked about a lot. We're just saying as we sit here today and as we look at the landscape, it's not a high probability thing. And at the end of the day, our job we feel is to tilt probability in your favor. That's what we're looking for. That's all we can offer, and that's what we're trying to dig and find. So bubbles are the antithesis to that. So if we we may not call it a bubble, we may just look at a category and say, you know what, it doesn't make any sense. It's overvalued. We're going to avoid it. Is it a bubble? Sure, call it a bubble if you want. But you know, if it if it has those characteristics from a personal financial perspective, you should minimize your exposure to these things. And it goes back to diversification, Josh, which we're ridiculously huge fans of because we're smart enough to know we're not that smart. Right. So I, the best example of that diversification is the Japanese asset bubble, right? If, if you had 100% of your assets, if you're a Japanese investor with 100% of your assets invested in Japan, that was a pretty catastrophic outcome for you. If you're a global investor with five or 10% of your assets invested in Japan, you did just fine over the past 30 years. And in fact, you did probably incredibly well if you were invested in stocks. There are events that actually influence the, the progression of time. So whether that's the, you know, the, the, the tech wreck of, of 2000 or whether it's, you know, the 2008 
uh, the collapse of the financial system, you know, all of these of the global pandemic we're going through right now, if you are diversified, none of these events derailed you. Now, if you went into the, this pandemic with 80% of your resources in commercial real estate, you could have a real issue right now. You could have a real fundamental issue that's going to take you a long time, if ever, to dig out of. So by trying to outsmart the system, be really, really, you know, high conviction names people throw around. It's like high conviction is something people throw around when they don't have enough life experience, in my opinion, you know, because you, you, you shouldn't have a whole lot of confidence in pretty much anything. So diversification is the way to, to manage known risk and manage unknown risk. And there's no shortcut and it's not sexy. It's not exciting. It's not going to make a great billboard, but it's the way to play the game. This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth Inc. IA Private Wealth Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth Inc. operates. Based on observation, it seems that the time an investor is most likely to move his or her portfolio to a new advisor is when the old advisor dies. Let us go on record as saying that having a pulse is not a great reason to trust someone with your entire financial future. Stop putting your life in the hands of stillbreathingwealthplanners.com and call us.